This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 230, San Francisco. I am Hal Hammonds, Citizen of Heaven, your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for listening, rating, and subscribing. San Francisco is perhaps the most unique city in the United States, for better or for worse. Probably both. This week we will discuss the short and winding road, and how San Franciscans have turned it into a blessing instead of a problem, the disaster of 1906 and how humans' best efforts made it far, far worse, Norton I, Emperor of the United States, and his relationship with his subjects, and the bigger business you can build by sinking your existing business into San Francisco Bay. We'll start with what I've been preaching. Lombard Street, especially the block in the Russian Hill neighborhood between Hyde and Leavenworth, is one of the signature tourist attractions in San Francisco. Not any particular building or attraction at a Lombard Street address, mind you, the street itself. The road goes down a 27-degree grade, far too steep for normal traffic. So designers put in a series of switchbacks, sharp curves in the road, forcing cars to go almost horizontally and then make sharp turns in the opposite direction. The speed limit is five miles an hour. Five. Needless to say, it makes for a very frustrating drive, but a safe one, which is the main point. I couldn't find specific data on the number of car wrecks that occur on Lombard Street, only that it's not especially large. That tells me the plan works. Lombard Street is publicized as the crookedest street in the world. In fact, it isn't even the crookedest street in San Francisco. But Lombard Street is the one that gets all the publicity. It's largely because of the red brick driving surface and the beautiful hydrangea bushes that were planted along the roadway back in the 1960s. You've likely seen pictures of Lombard Street. Recently, it was seen in the film The Ant-Man and the Wasp. A cartoon version is in Pixar's Inside Out. I hear it even makes an appearance in the Grand Theft Auto video game. Lombard Street is a wonderful example of using ingenuity and creativity to turn lemons into lemonade. An ordinary road in this setting would probably produce a wreck an hour. Any reasonable driver would avoid the area entirely. Property values would plummet. As it is, the drive is not only safe, but even enjoyable. The people with driveways that empty out onto Lombard Street are not prisoners in their own homes. The road has become a tourist attraction, to the point that the state of California is thinking about charging $5 to drive on it. Insert your favorite joke about taxes in California here. Nobody especially likes being told what to do. But if you're honest with yourself, you'll admit that switchbacks placed on the roads of your life by parents, government, public pressure, or any other force have saved your life more than once. Sometimes you may not see the point. Many times you're prohibited from doing something that looks amazing, like driving your car down a 27-degree incline at 60 miles an hour. But in your saner moments, you're grateful for the switchbacks. And you shake your head in amazement at the crazy people who bypass them, to their own detriment, and sometimes even to yours. Jesus puts switchbacks on the road to heaven as well. And since hell is not a visible consequence like twisted metal and broken bones, you may be inclined to ignore them. But they are blessings, whether you realize it or not. His commandments are not burdensome, according to 1 John 5.3. He's not creating inconvenience for the sake of inconvenience. He's showing you the best way to proceed through life. Has he robbed us of anything of true value by, for instance, imposing strict marital laws or implementing the golden rule? It's like Paul writes in Romans 6.21, 
Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving for the things of which you're now ashamed? For the outcome of these things is death. Jesus' requirements are blessings, not hardships. And the more you invest yourself in the things of Jesus, the more beautiful the experience gets. If you decide to decorate the narrow path instead of whining about it, you can actually enjoy the trip. Instead of just barreling your way through life without thought or consideration, you realize the true joy found along the way by those who truly place their treasure in heaven. What impression of the Lord's church do you think you give to outsiders if you're constantly harping on the negative aspects? Jesus won't let me drink. Jesus won't let me fornicate. Jesus won't let me steal from my boss. As though such things were all that wonderful in the first place. If instead you rejoice in the Lord always, Philippians 4.4. If you do all things without complaining or arguments, Philippians 2.14. If you tell everyone you meet about the beautiful road you've decided to drive on. If you brag about the Lord you serve, who has done everything in the world to save your life, including sacrificing his own. You can turn the so-called burdens of the Christian life into benefits. It's a beautiful thing to walk with Jesus down the path he's designated. Maybe you need to slow down a bit and appreciate that. This is what I've been reading. I spent a couple of months combing the used bookstores for a good but inexpensive book about the San Francisco earthquake of 1906. I'd heard it was one of the biggest ever, and I'm always looking to improve my understanding of important historical events. I kept bumping into San Francisco is Burning by Dennis Smith, but I couldn't find it for less than $8, and I try to keep my per book average around $4. Hal Hammonds, famous tightwad, scouring the clearance section for five podcasting seasons. And besides, I wanted a book on the earthquake, really, not the fires. But I finally broke down and bought it, and I'm very glad I did, if for no other reason than to realize I'd been putting the emphasis on the wrong disaster all these years. Over a four-day period, the disasters in San Francisco claimed more than 3,000 lives, destroyed more than 28,000 buildings over a 522-block area, drove more than 200,000 residents out of their homes, but it's now estimated that less than 2% of the devastation was a direct result of the earthquake. All the rest was fire damage. And the fire damage was far, far worse than it had to be. In fact, Smith makes a compelling case that the city would have been much better off if the people in charge had done absolutely nothing. It was the efforts to put out the fires that made the fires spread so far and wreak so much havoc. A statement like that, if accepted at face value, would likely cause you to want to pillory the man serving as the chief firefighter in San Francisco on that fateful morning. But that would be a mistake. In fact, Dennis Sullivan, the unquestioned and respected expert in all things fire-related in San Francisco, spent the entire ordeal in the hospital after sustaining what would turn out to be fatal injuries in the initial wake of the earthquake. For four horrible days, less qualified men from local government and the U.S. Armed Forces did their best, no doubt, to combat the fire. And through a horrible combination of egotism, turf warfare, and downright ineptitude, they helped one of the greatest cities in America destroy itself. Believe it or not, using dynamite to fight fires is actually a thing. By destroying a row of buildings ahead of the path of the blaze, you rob the fire of fuel. The wind is less likely to carry burning embers to new untouched areas. But it has to be done right. Targets must be chosen properly and leveled in a timely fashion. 
and it doesn't hurt anything to make sure the buildings to be detonated don't have, say, large stores of black powder in them. Unfortunately, many buildings were demolished that may not have even been in danger. Man-made explosions sent burning pieces of wreckage far beyond the firebreaks and created brand new fires. In a strange twist, the small cluster of buildings that survived the fires seemed to correspond directly with ordinary citizens who refused to obey the orders to evacuate and simply stayed put and fought the fires on their own. By the way, refusing to evacuate when ordered to do so was a crime that got dozens of law-abiding citizens executed on the spot by so-called law enforcement officials. If the government had not forced people at gunpoint to evacuate, including in areas that were not in immediate danger, they may have been able to both save their homes and stem the growth of the fire. In short, good intentions are no guarantee of good results. You need strong leadership. You need proper planning and preparation. You need all hands on deck. Power in the wrong hands can turn manageable circumstances into catastrophes. That's why God installed leadership in the body of Christ. Yes, in theory, having the Bible should be enough to help Christians weather any storm. But in practicality, sometimes we need leaders on the ground with bullhorns, making sure the right people and the right resources are put in the right place. Ephesians 4.11 says the work of leadership from apostles to teachers is to equip every Christian to serve. Good leadership devotes itself to that task so that when and if the earthquake strikes, you have dozens if not hundreds of qualified workers on the job instead of three or four. I don't know when the next disaster will strike you or your local brethren, nor do you. But I do know you can survive it. You might even be able to save some others but only if you follow the people who are following the Lord. If you follow Diotrephes simply because he's the loudest voice in the room, you may very well participate in the destruction of the temple of God. And as 1 Corinthians 3.17 tells us, woe be to the one who does that. This is what I've been hearing. At the peremptory request and desire of a large majority of the citizens of these United States, I, Joshua Norton, formerly of Algoa Bay, Cape of Good Hope, and now for the last nine years and ten months past of San Francisco, California, declare and proclaim myself Emperor of these United States, and in virtue of the authority thereby in me vested, do hereby order and direct the representatives of the different states of the Union to assemble in musical hall of this city, on the first day of February next, then and there to make such alterations in the existing laws of the Union as may ameliorate the evils under which the country is laboring, and thereby cause confidence to exist, both at home and abroad, in our stability and integrity. Signed, Norton I, Emperor of the United States. Joshua Abraham Norton gave that statement in a letter delivered by hand to the offices of the San Francisco Daily Bulletin on September 17, 1859. The paper printed it in an advertisement paid for by Norton. Oops, uh, pardon me, Emperor Norton. As emperor, he summoned the army to dispose of all members of Congress, dissolve the Republic, and abolish both the Democratic and Republican parties. Well, I don't know about you, but he's got my vote. In the days and years that followed, Norton routinely toured the streets of San Francisco, making inspections and public appearances. He proposed marriage to Queen Victoria of England. He issued paper currency in denominations ranging from 50 cents to $10, and many local restaurants accepted it. In 
He named the Black-owned Pacific Appeal newspaper his imperial organ, and the Appeal wound up publishing about 250 of the Emperor's proclamations. When Norton died, a fund was collected to pay for a good funeral. An estimated 10,000 supporters came to pay their respects. When the San Francisco-Oakland Bay Bridge was built, an idea first promoted by Emperor Norton, many suggested the bridge should be named after him, if only unofficially. Even now, a century and a half later, his legacy lives on. Norton was insane, of course. And to answer the obvious question, yes, at least once the authorities arrested him and tried to put him in a proper facility. Citizens were outraged. Eventually, the police chief was forced to release Norton with an official apology. Norton graciously granted him an imperial pardon. The people of San Francisco were more than willing to put up with some eccentricities. He was not hurting anyone, after all. And everyone seemed to embrace a bit of local color as part of the San Francisco experience. Part of me loves the story of Emperor Norton. And part of me looks at the city of San Francisco today and wonders if the legacy of Emperor Norton is larger than some funny stories in a tombstone. I would cautiously suggest that the story of Emperor Norton in San Francisco might be an extreme example of broken window syndrome. When disrepair or crime or eccentricity becomes accepted on a local level, it tends to spread. If municipalities or nations or churches get in the habit of excusing misbehavior, misbehavior tends to become the rule instead of the exception. I don't mean to make light of mental illness or homelessness here, very much the opposite. I mean to say people in trouble need solutions more than they need affirmation. Do we need to come down hard on every single offender? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying true compassion is shown in true service, not just in saying be warmed and filled to borrow from James 2.16. And true service sometimes means giving people what they need instead of what they want. It's a lot like the itching ears syndrome Paul discusses in 2 Timothy 4.3. Listeners are happy when preachers tell them what they want to hear. Preachers are happy when listeners are happy. And in the meantime, the body of Christ drifts further and further into apathy, decay, and rebellion. Kindness is part of the fruit of the Spirit, no doubt. But if cultivating kindness results in crowding out goodness and self-control, we're doing more harm than good. This is what I've been playing. I'll admit, the entire idea of a San Francisco episode was in large measure a rationalization for me to get a copy of Embarcadero. I'm a sucker for games set in America of the past, and the idea of building structures in the middle of San Francisco Bay was just too enticing to resist. But let me back up and give you some context. The Embarcadero is a boulevard along San Francisco Bay, dating back almost as far as San Francisco itself. In its boomtown days, San Francisco had more demand for bayfront property than it had bayfront. So city fathers came up with an interesting solution. They claimed various boats that had been docked and abandoned at the piers in the bay, sunk them, and then built on top of the wreckage. Apparently it worked, because unlike most other boomtowns in the American West, San Francisco did not bust. And in large measure, it was because of the remarkable blessings provided by San Francisco Bay and the local citizens' creativity in making it work to their advantage. Embarcadero, the board game, recreates that old San Francisco atmosphere very well, I think. Players have opportunities to dock boats on the various piers and then use them as engines for creating resources. 
which then in turn can be used to build businesses or more boats. As your enterprise gets more and more successful, you can build on your successes, literally, by stacking one business on top of another. But sometimes the cost of doing business involves sinking one of your boats and losing the resources that it brings to you. As someone who struggles to throw away a Kleenex before it's been used three or four times, this cuts me to the heart. But the game's not about collecting accomplishments. It's about getting better at what you do. And sometimes you need to employ the addition by subtraction principle. Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead is an inspiring principle. But actually putting Philippians 3.13 into practice can be challenging. There's a natural tendency, especially among men, to build something and then just back up and stare at it for a while. Embarcadero is a bit like that. There's something satisfying about looking at the city you've built on your game table over the last 60 to 90 minutes. That wasn't there before I started work, I say to myself. Whether it's the San Francisco Wharf in Embarcadero, the weirdest castle of all time in Castles of Mad King Ludwig, or a steampunk-style dam in Whistle Mountain. If you're not a gamer, maybe for you it's admiring a new line of fence, or rebuilt engine, or a completed jigsaw puzzle. The last thing in the world you want to do is start tearing it up right away. But progress requires regress sometimes. Our walk with Jesus is not about arriving at a destination and admiring the view. Not in this earthly realm, anyway. It's about moving on to the next challenge. And it may be that the rubble of the last project is what you'll need to complete the next one. The church at Lakewoods Drive, where I work, is in a wonderful place right now. But we're compelled to look to the challenges of the future, which may involve major disruptions in the status quo. In the most literal of senses, we may need to tear up a perfectly good parking lot to build a new auditorium, which of course would leave us in need of a new parking lot. Getting to the next chapter is going to be very, very messy. But that doesn't mean we should stay where we are. We reach forward cautiously and prayerfully, but we reach forward. Every success in life brings with it two or three more challenges. If you like, you can see that as a source of frustration and just set up permanent camp where you are. Or you can see that as further opportunities to advance the kingdom of Jesus Christ in your own life and perhaps in the lives of others as well. Moving forward is expensive. It often comes at great personal cost. But to excel still more, as Paul told the brethren in 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 and 10, means to be not satisfied with what you've built in the past. It's the positive counterpart to the dreams of the rich farmer in Luke 12, 18, who wanted to tear down his barns and build bigger ones. If you're storing up treasure in heaven, as Jesus requires in Matthew 6, 19-21, and if you're doing a good job, be ready to tear those barns down and build bigger ones. Leave old forms behind if necessary. Sink those boats and build something even better in their place. Thank you for listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Please rate, review, and share so others can access this content. I encourage you also to join the Heaven Citizens Facebook group. There you will find links to related materials, conversation starters, poll questions, and the occasional special announcement. Also, check out the Hal Hammonds channel on YouTube for even more content. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, Citizen of Heaven, signing off.